You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Greg Crotto, principal scientist at Google AI. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on Theory and Practice. So Alex, for this episode, I got to interview Greg Crotto from Google AI. That sounds amazing. It really was. We start our conversation by talking about how he got to where he is today. My career path was filled with surprises and twists and turns. I actually got started in physics. I was interested in physics because I wanted to understand how things worked, how the, the world operated. And I did that as an undergrad, and I really, I really enjoyed it. I felt like physics was my first love. But then I, I really started to focus on the brain. I felt like the brain was the most interesting and complicated object in the known universe, and I wanted to learn more about how that worked. And so I ended up going to graduate school, uh, actually in neuroscience, just trying to learn more about how the biological brain operated. And it was in the course of my PhD that I realized that I was interested in intelligence, but not only biological intelligence. I was as interested in artificial intelligence as I was from the intelligence that arose from organic matter. And in particular, I was very excited about whether or not there were things that we could learn from the biological brain or inspiration that we could take from the biological brain and use that to actually construct intelligent systems ourselves. And that was what led me to AI and machine learning and, and deep learning. And then it's been a bunch of surprises since then about how well these technologies actually do work, how basic ideas uh, like artificial neural networks have practical ap applicability. And so I've been at Google for about the last eight years now, working on those kinds of technologies and applying them to products and services, both in the healthcare and biological space, and also to regular Google products like Search and Translate and things like that. You said you first start off in physics and then kind of migrate into neuroscience. What was your entry point into neuroscience? So, for example, as a physicist, I could imagine maybe it was electrophysiology. On the other hand, you know, given your interest in intelligence, maybe it was more systems level questions. How did you get going in neuroscience? Yeah, so it was actually a little bit of a progression. It was that I started out on the physics side and then sort of began to gravitate towards biophysics. And I was interested in molecular dynamics and protein folding and things like that. And then I met a neuroscience named Bill Bialik. He was at NEC at the time, but has moved to Princeton and started to learn from him about how nervous systems represented information and computed information. And that's actually what moved me into the electrophysiological space and kind of the systems neuroscience route. Uh, so in my PhD, what I was interested in was trying to learn about how nervous systems encoded information and use that information to guide decision-making. And that really uh, captured my interest to try to understand that most basic level of intelligence, which is how does a choice or a decision get made? So now that you work in deep learning, and obviously you're a certified neuroscientist, how much do these two fields actually really relate to one another, or are they just high-level similarities? 
I really feel like the analogy between modern artificial intelligence and modern neuroscience is like the analogy between aviation and ornithology, between birds and and planes, in that, yes, there are some common principles and some shared elements. You know, birds and planes, they both have wings, right? And they both use lift as their fundamental premise for, for how it is that they move through the air. But all of the details are different. And it's very much like that with deep learning, I think, where the basic ideas of distributed computation and distributed learning uh, are shared between artificial neural networks and biological neural networks. But all of the details are different. And in many cases, we don't even really understand the details of the biological brain well enough to even know how it works and how that compares to the artificial systems that engineers build. And as you kind of think about the future of each of these two fields, do you think that the analogy between ornithology and aviation will continue to be the case? Or do you think that they'll actually grow into each other where the biology will inform the deep learning and the deep learning will inform the biology? So I actually think that they're going to continue to orbit each other and have a close relationship and and a useful exchange of ideas. But I do think that that exchange of ideas will be at a relatively abstract level. So, for example, I think that there are already a bunch of interesting inroads for deep learning and artificial neural networks to give back to neuroscience, but it's in the form of generating hypotheses for how it is that neural computation might occur. What we do is we see that we can build an artificial system and understand how it is that it works, and then we can say, okay, well, wait a minute. This is how an artificial system learned to do this. Let's ask the question, well, is this how the biological system works or not? Fair enough. So let me switch gears for a second. And a lot of your work recently has been at the intersection of life sciences and deep learning. Certainly kind of amazing results on using deep learning for diabetic retinopathy, things in bioinformatics. Maybe kind of give us a high-level thoughts on that work and where it's going next. I feel like the pattern that we're seeing in the application of deep learning in industry generally is that if you can find an opportunity where there's fundamentally a repetitive task that's being done, and it, it might even be a relatively subtle judgment, but if it's a repetitive task or a repetitive identification problem or a repetitive diagnostic, and we actually can get examples, data of something being done well, the machines can basically learn to imitate that behavior. And the way that this plays out in biology and medicine is that you could be uh, someone in a pathology lab trying to count cells. Well, you can teach a machine what it looks like to count an individual cell, and then it can very rapidly count them and classify them faster than the human who taught the machine can. And what's happened in diabetic retinopathy is that doctors and even technicians can screen diabetic patients to see whether they're at risk for this complication, but there just aren't nearly enough of those doctors and technicians. They can instead teach an algorithm to repeat this repetitive process for them and then offload that extra work to an automated system. And that's the sense in which I think that these technologies are most likely to have a big impact is by taking something that is either too costly or where there aren't sufficient staff to perform this function and allowing that sub-function to be automated, but still to be interpreted by the scientist or by the doctor. So if you think about, let's say, the next decade of medicine, 
What's your view on the timeline on which these technologies get incorporated? What does it look like in one year, in five years, in 10 years? So I think that the maturity of the technology is something that is happening to me at a surprisingly fast rate. And that I believe that a lot of the core elements for how these things can be used in science and medicine will arrive very soon. And that over the next five uh, years or so, we're going to see an explosion of kind of prototypes and demonstrations for how it is that AI might be helpful in medicine and biological sciences. But what I actually think is going to take a little bit longer is working with medical professionals and the community overall to make sure that these things are demonstrated to be safe and effective and that we actually figure out how it is that these technologies can most be useful to doctors. Because the thing that really motivates me is that I believe that these technologies can be used to make healthcare more available and more accurate, but we need the medical community to figure out well, what really is the best use of these, these tools. But my belief is that if we look, let's say 10 years from now, I think that you're going to see a huge number of practical integration points where this kind of technology is being used in your regular doctor's visit and has started to feel indispensable as indispensable as uh, the stethoscope or antibiotics. You know, one of the things you were talking about, the problems needed to solve to get adoption was building an evidence base. But I didn't hear you mention incentive structures. You know, what will drive doctors to actually adopt these technologies? Right now, many of them are even scared that they will be replaced by, by these technologies. The doctors that I've, uh, I've worked with and spoken to about this, once they understand what the technology does and doesn't do, it actually becomes a lot less scary because it becomes clear, oh, wait a minute, this is a better diagnostic. This is a better way of organizing information. This is a tool that's here to help me. And advances in technology have been essential to medicine for hundreds of years, right? Whether it's the advent of the microscope or imaging technologies like CT scans, these kinds of things allow us to see and understand the biology in ways that we couldn't previously. And I think that AI and machine learning is going to be just another tool in that process. And I really do think that it's going to be doctors who learn to work with these technologies that see their abilities to provide care really dramatically expand. And so to me, that's the motivation that I think will bring doctors to these tools is the understanding that they are care multipliers. So is it kind of fair to say that we should think of machine learning as the stethoscope of the 21st century? It's kind of interesting. I wonder, is it the stethoscope or, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit more like the blood pressure cuff of the 21st century or, or something like that. But I think that the fundamental thing that it's going to do is that doctors right now are actually already inundated and overwhelmed with information, right? And they're extraordinarily pressed for time. And they spend so much attention working on things that are outside of what really is the practice of medicine and focusing on the patient. And I think the role of AI, the appropriate role of AI, is to give doctors the opportunity to return their attention to the patient and not have to worry about all of these other things and have the information that is most relevant to them be surfaced in a relatively automatic fashion. So, you know, as you're talking as a doctor, 
I really can sense that you know our pain. How did you learn it? How do you bring medical insights and medical thinking into your team at Google, which is fundamentally a team of machine learning experts? You definitely don't do this kind of thing in a vacuum. I think it's complete hubris for people in Silicon Valley to imagine that this kind of thing can be done by tech companies full stop. The way that I think you actually do this innovation is by working very closely with the people who understand these problems and work themselves in the trenches every day. So my team has done that both by bringing MDs and clinicians on staff in our team, sitting next to machine learning researchers and engineers so that they can work together every day. And equally importantly, getting out there and actually visiting clinics, watching doctors, having academic partnerships with hospitals to really talk about what are the real problems? Because it's really the doctors who understand what the challenges are. And the technology is just tools to solve those problems. So I think that these things have to be done through really deep collaborations. And that's, I think, is what has been so important to our success in the field so far. So to kind of walk through it at a deeper level, when you're choosing a problem to work on, like you did with diabetic retinopathy, do you start with, here's a new idea in machine learning, let's find an application in medicine? Do you start with a problem in medicine and then look around for the right machine learning technologies? Yeah, this is a great question. And the answer that we found is that it's actually really important to take a dual approach, to try reasoning both from, in some sense, left to right and right to left. So on the one side, what we do is we look at AI technologies that we understand, and we say, let's try to imagine how this could apply to healthcare or biological sciences and generate ideas and hypotheses that way. But you also have to work from the opposite end and say, these are the problems, these are the core issues, these are the fundamental challenges that we face. What machine learning tools could we pull in to build something that is actually useful here, a product or a solution that really works? And it's by trying to nibble from both directions with experts who really understand the base technologies and challenges that you can sort of start to see, wait a minute, this is how we could actually reach each other. This can be the point of contact because we see that it works from both directions simultaneously. And you can only do that if you have people who trust, know, and respect each other from both fields working really closely. And the doctors that you have on your team, do they tend to be people that were originally trained in computer science or machine learning? Or is it just people who are good communicators, understand medicine deeply, and you know, willing to try and engage with technical folk? It definitely isn't the case that there are folks who were educated in computer science formally in any particular way. It's people, though, that believe that technology is something that's exciting and that they're really excited about the possibility of trying to develop new tools and techniques. But I really think that it's about understanding the medical space and having kind of an openness and an ability to communicate across the boundary of training. Because one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, it takes a significant fraction of a lifetime to get a grasp of modern medicine. And it also takes a significant fraction of a lifetime to get a grasp of modern artificial intelligence. And being able to communicate across those very different backgrounds in a very diverse team is really the essential skill to making this work. I have a question for you about kind of how you think about the team. 
you know, in a traditional software engineering world, you have product managers and tech leads, and they kind of have this what versus how conversation in creating a product. Is it fair to think of in your world, the doctor is kind of the product manager and the machine learning expert is kind of the tech lead? I think that's a relatively apt analogy. And in fact, in many cases, it's literally true that our product managers are MDs. They've been trained in medicine and they're able to kind of run point and understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and interface more deeply with clinicians who are practicing specialists in the area that we're working on. On the tech lead side, it's often the case that that is someone who has a deep engineering background and has probably been working in other applied machine learning areas. So this is one of the things that's been very useful is that because at Google, we have a lot of experience in applying machine learning to all kinds of products and services, whether it's speech recognition or image recognition or natural language processing, those kind of technical skills can come over and say, okay, this is a new problem domain. I don't know anything about the problem space, but I've got the tech down pat and I'm applying it to something new. And that combination works really well. So when you're bringing in the doctors into Brain, tell me a little bit about the qualities that you look for. I'm sure there must be a lot of doctors who are trying to get jobs with your group. <laughs> well, the things that are most important are enthusiasm, an open mind, and the ability to communicate well. The ability to both understand an entirely new idea and to be able to communicate an idea that you're very familiar with that the other side who, you know, though they're very intelligent, they may just not be aware of these facts about the world or don't understand a process or a system. And it's that exchange of ideas that makes things work. And this isn't actually the way that we do job interviews, but in some sense, this is what I'm trying to imagine, is having a doc and a technologist standing next to each other in front of a whiteboard and bantering back and forth excitedly about what's the opportunity here? And, you know, oh, this is an idea that she had over here and that we can bring into this new space. And this is another piece that we can bring in from another domain of technology. So it's this ability to be collaborative and creative and a willingness to experiment a little bit. So this is something that I also see on the engineering side is that the engineers who are most successful in machine learning and AI are those who have either a natural science background or a data science background or a natural inclination towards the scientific method. Because ultimately, the way that machine learning really works in, in practice is by having a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, and taking the feedback about what that told you about whether the idea that you thought would work is in fact working. And so I think it's the same thing for the clinicians. It's clinicians who could have been natural scientists. Those are the folks who are most able to work in this space. So after your initial successes in diabetic retinopathy, what are the fields that you're most excited about in medicine right now? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of work in let's say, advanced diagnostics, right? And some of those things will be in the medical imaging space, whether it's radiology or pathology or dermatology or any of these various fields where some kind of visual image is used to make a diagnostic. But it's also going to apply in domains that have nothing to do with imaging. So I'm very excited about the applications of AI to clinical genomics and to 
other kinds of tests that uh, we don't traditionally think of as things that are associated with imaging in any way. I also feel like another big phase where we're going to see a lot of growth is in information management and clinical decision support. So making information that is most relevant to the decision-making process surface in a way that feels natural and effortless as opposed to kind of digging around and potentially missing things and spending a huge amount of time with your head buried in the electronic medical record rather than actually looking at the patient. And I think that's going to be another big area of growth. You know, I, I think the decision support is something that really resonates with every doctor. As a cardiologist, you know, I found myself often making very big decisions with long-lasting impacts on people's lives, whether to put in a valve, whether to put a stent, things like that. And you make them on such imperfect information. How does this actually come into routine clinical practice? Yeah, so I think the way that it comes into routine clinical practice, it has to be borne out through a variety of stages. And I think that the very first stage that's going to be really important here is trying to help computers understand the intent of what a doctor is looking for in an electronic medical record or what kind of decision-making support they're trying to have. And this is something that has taken a while to be able to develop in other spaces, right? I mean, even things like, you know, regular old Google search took a long time to develop in order to be able to say, look, this is the kind of question that I have. This is the kind of information that I'm looking for. How do I see what's there that's relevant? And these kinds of things are domain-specific. And I think that that's going to be one of the areas where we see it applied first is in trying to make information retrieval uh, more useful, right? So that there's kind of less of this hunting around or even just kind of trying to dig through things that are often redundant. Understood. So you're head of augmented intelligence at Google. What is augmented intelligence? Right. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy in the AI community in that some people are very interested in what I think of as very long-term science fiction-y objectives like artificial general intelligence, the idea of you know trying to build systems that have a completely flexible kind of intelligence. And I actually am on sort of the other side of this, pretty far on the other side of the spectrum, which is that I see AI like many other technologies as a way of extending or augmenting our skills. And I mean that in a very general sense. So paper and pencil fundamentally is an augmentation of our memory. We write things down and whether it's trying to work out a math problem or taking notes for yourself, you use paper and pencil to augment natural human intelligence by augmenting your memory. Today, we're all used to, you know, oh, well, I use my phone to, you know, augment my communication abilities, right? I can't yell five miles, but I can make a phone call that goes over five miles. You know, maybe I use my phone to help me with navigating around. I think in general about AI as another big leap in that kind of technical chain, but it's something that is kind of a natural progression, which is that these technologies will ultimately be most useful when we design them to be tools that we ourselves want to use on a regular basis. So how much of your time is spent on new machine learning technologies and how much of your time is spent on applications of them and product development? 
So that's something that's changed over time for me personally. I used to spend much more time on developing entirely new technologies. And then I, I moved more and more into the application space. And fundamentally, what I believe is that there's kind of a 70-20-10 kind of breakdown that I think works really well, where 70% of what you're doing is you're taking technical ideas that are very worked out and you really feel are quite mature, and you're trying to do the hard work of applying them to a new technology. And then about 20% of things are places where you feel like it's much more speculative and that real technical innovation will be required, but there's a spark, right? There's a, a nugget of an idea. There's something that you're chasing that you think that you might get to. And then only about 10% of my thinking and the resourcing on the team is things that I think of as kind of blue sky AI research, where you're working on a technique or a technology, and you're not even sure where it would apply in healthcare or medicine, but you're just staying close to the cutting edge and trying to search in directions that are hinted at as being uh, useful to medicine or biological sciences. You know, as you think about a lot of the new technologies that have come about, such as deep learning, at least from the outside and as someone who is trained in more kind of theoretical mathematics, it often feels like it's empirical rather than kind of having a, a kind of first principles kind of definition theorem proof. How long before we have the theoretical framework for deep learning and other tools like that? I completely agree with that, actually. So one of my former colleagues, David Duvenot, put it this way, that, you know, right now it's almost like we're building bridges before we have mechanical engineering stress and strain equations worked out. And we're learning empirical principles about how you build a structure that goes over water, but we don't have all the theory worked out so that we can do it on paper first and be completely sure that it's going to work. And there is real trial and error in how we build these systems. And that leads to the current state where actually experience in having built things that work before is the best indicator for our ability to build something that works in the future because it is kind of still very much kind of a craft rather than an exact science that's been worked out. I'm actually quite optimistic that the rate at which we're going to get these kind of technical theoretical understanding for these things, it seems to me like it's going quite well. But I think that in the end, it will, much like uh, you know, real mechanical engineering, uh, structural engineering, and architecture, when you build these things in the real world, there's always some kind of finesse that ends up being required to make things that are really impactful in the physical environment. And when you talk about applications, I think that you have that same kind of somewhat elusive step of both creativity and also real craftsmanship to make something work in practice. Fair enough. Let me give you an analogy, and I'm curious if it resonates. Brahe generated lots of data. Kepler did curve fitting, and then Newton came up the first principles. Is it fair to say the web is Brahe? Right now, we're in the Kepler era, and we're waiting for the first principles to come along? 
I think that that's actually a really exciting and apt analogy is that in terms of our understanding of the fundamental premises that allow you to construct intelligence, I do feel like we're kind of in that Kepler era where we have some observational principles and we have the ability to make some predictions, but the underlying mechanisms are still somewhat elusive. Again, walk me through a little bit what's happened over the last decade that has been the phase transition. A lot of the ideas like neural networks have been around for a long time. Was it we got better at the crafting? Was it that we just finally had enough compute or enough data to make what was not working before suddenly work? Or was there some new fundamental change in in what we could actually do? I'm a believer that the most important thing was really the expansion of our ability to get computation. Data sets were also getting larger in parallel. But no amount of data sets getting larger would have helped without these incredible advances in how fast computers are. And something that feels like an analogy to me is that it was almost like glass blowing before you could really get a high temperature kiln, right? And if you have to spend an enormous amount of effort to just kind of try to get uh, something slightly malleable and then you only have a tiny amount of time to play with it, it's very hard to be creative and to explore new ideas. But if it's completely trivial to melt glass and play with it and put it together in new ways, then you have this explosion of new ideas and new ways of using it. And I feel like that's what's happened with artificial intelligence and machine learning. It went from something that you can barely do and it wasn't really that interesting to, oh, actually this this kind of works, to now feeling like this is something that people can teach themselves and use in all kinds of interesting ways, things that I would never have thought of, like uh, you know, sorting cucumbers or identifying dolphins based on the shape of their dorsal fin. Like These are things that now people who are not experts in the field can apply the same technology that experts have developed to their own ideas and really expanded it into a cottage industry of applied narrow AI. Greg, this has been a wonderful opportunity to hear thoughts from one of the leaders who's working in applying modern machine learning to some of the most important problems in medicine. Maybe you could kind of give us a sense of what you see over the next two or three years that you're most excited about. And also, you know, for a lot of the listeners who are maybe in their training phases of their career and are looking for the problems to work on, what would you point them at? So a lot of the things that I'm most excited about are things that I feel like are a little bit farther into the future, things that I'm uncertain about the the time course and the trajectory. And a lot of them are very much in fundamental biology. So one of the things that I'm really excited right now about is the, the way that AI and machine learning is starting to change the way that we understand the brain. There are a number of projects and some really interesting work going on at Google, for example, trying to use uh, machine learning systems to be able to actually trace individual neurons in a nervous system to actually build, for example, the connection diagram for the fly brain. And that kind of thing might be opening an entirely new window into neuroscience and our understanding of how the brain functions. It's as if a new scientific instrument is on the verge of being born, and then we're going to get to do all of this new science because we can now measure these fundamental things that are so important, like brain connectivity. Another kind of example that really resonates with me is about 
protein folding structure and molecular design, which is that for a long time, we've been struggling with trying to be able to predict protein structures and functions from sequence. And we've made a lot of progress in that over the last 10 years. But I'm actually really excited that machine learning and AI may allow us to make pretty surprising and rapid leaps over the next decade in terms of understanding and being able to predict and even design how molecules interact and fit together in ways that right now would feel like science fiction. Well, that's wonderful. Incredibly inspiring. And on that note, we'll thank you for being on Theory and Practice today and you know, look forward to many more interactions to come over the years. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Greg Corrado, Senior Researcher at Google AI. Yeah, so cool that you got to have that conversation. Alex, you and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone in the group brings an idea, either a problem, which is to say a nail, or a solution, which is a, a hammer. Do you have a cool idea you want to talk about today? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about changes in the kinds of input data that we can handle in machine learning. So, so what do you mean? Yeah, so I, I want to back up first and say like all of the successes or many of the successes we've seen in machine learning are all on rectangles. Images, rectangles. Text, uh, long, thin rectangles. Yep. Although you can think of them as fatter ones if you think about each sentence is like each character is like, you know, from an alphabet and then, uh, you know, each position is like, you know, zero to 25 or something like that. So we, we took the bold maneuver of generalizing from squares to rectangles. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was quite a remarkable jump to move to rectangles. <laughs> what are some other examples? Machine learning on audio is typically done as spectrograms. We basically turn them into images and then we kind of use all the tricks from images. And this has done a really, really good job in a lot of application areas, right? So some industrial, some academic, but I, th I think there's no question now that machine learning has had an enormous impact on both industry and society, and it's all because of rectangles. Okay. What's changing now is there's things that aren't rectangles that we'd like to make predictions on, right? So an example is like a molecule. Like you'd like to know if a molecule is soluble or if it. it will likely bind with a receptor, or if it will likely have a particular color, or, or really any property of a molecule that, that you might care about predicting. Molecules aren't rectangles, and it's Got kind it. of hard to shove them into something that looks like a rectangle. There are historical approaches to doing that. One of the most popular ones is this thing called Morgan fingerprints, which basically like takes a molecule, explodes it into all of its pieces at all the possible sizes, and then counts how often each of those things occur. And you just say, hey, there's maybe 8,000 different possible fragments that could ever exist in a molecule, and you just say zero, it didn't exist in this molecule, or one, it did. And so that's been pretty popular. Um, that's been around for a couple decades now, and it's kind of the baseline way that people featureize molecules in chemoinformatics. Let me go back to, like, you know, for me, really basic stuff like benzene. Right. I take the benzene and I break it up into six sides, basically, or... Yes, yeah, so you start first with the kind of radius zero feature, which is what are the atoms? And okay. so there's some carbons yep. in benzene, but there's no nitrogens or sulfurs or oxygens. Right. And so all the oxygen dimensions get zero oh, okay. and so carbon like gets a one. It's exactly atoms. a bag of words. That's exactly okay. what it is, right? Okay. And then you go to radius one and you see, okay, carbon-carbon double bond, and I'm gonna put a one there. I yep. don't see any carbon-carbon triple bonds. Um, I see some carbon-carbon single bonds. And so, you know, the ones that are there get a tick, yes, yep. and the ones that aren't there don't get a tick, right? Okay. And it just turns out, you know, there's many possible subfragments that could exist, and most of them usually don't exist in a molecule. And so it's this kind of sparse vector representation of a molecule. 
and then we feed that into a machine learning algorithm to predict the thing that we care about. Um, maybe that's solubility, or maybe that's you know efficacy in you know killing bacteria. And we're very happy. We're leaving a lot on the table though, because these features are the same no matter what task we're trying to solve. So this is kind of the success story in image modeling in neural networks is you want features that are adaptive to the task that you're handling, right? So you want to come up with features that are specialized for whatever you're trying to predict. The way people did this typically in the kind of 80s and 90s is they'll take images and they'll invent some features like, uh, hey, I want to you know find all the edges that are at 45 degrees and I want to find all the edges that are at 90 degrees and the ones where red is on the right of the Got edge it. and you know, just all this stuff. You get this huge bag of features and then you slap a model on top of it. The neural network revolution was to learn those features from data, yep. right? And to not have ones you don't need and to, you know, have more resolution or detail for the ones that you do. That revolution, that idea hasn't yet fully come to pass for graph valued inputs, but it's starting. And that's what's really exciting. This is a field that's really opening up Understood. and it applies to chemistry. It applies to things like social network graphs, to gene-gene interaction networks, to protein interaction networks. Anything you can think of where the really fundamental representation of the data is of relationships and not necessarily as a grid. So for example, like, let's think about a social network for a second. What would be the training data set that you would use? Let's take maybe a health example and I'll just go totally hypothetical here. So like, let's say you've got a network of all of your friends. And so the raw input data is who you're friends with, and we're making per node predictions. And here, node means a person, and an edge means a relationship. And so we can use all that information to make per node predictions. Now, there's other types of predictions that we might make, which is you know a prediction on the whole graph. Yeah. And this is more analogous in the kind of chemistry domain. So I don't really care if one atom is likely to bind with the receptor. That doesn't actually mean anything, but it does mean something for the whole molecule together mm -hmm. to bind to a receptor. And so I'm making a prediction on the whole graph. Got it. All right. So going back to molecules for a second and graphs, what's changed? Like what is it that now is happening that is the revolution? In about 2015, there started to be methods coming out that generalized convolutional neural networks to graph structures. The paper that comes to mind most readily is by David Duvino and Dougal McLaurin and Ryan Adams. There's other co-authors as well that applied neural networks to the kind of chemistry applications. And there had been work on graphs before, but to me, this was the paper that really kind of kicked things off, at least kind of in my mind and in my world. And then from there, there were a lot of innovations around different architectures, different tweaks that have dramatically improved the performance of these types of models. Okay. Very cool. So where is the field going now? There's a lot of unanswered questions here. The first thing that really excites me is we have so many tricks for making our image models work better. And, and there's just oh. like a long list of like little things. And like if you're in the know, you... Knob turning. Exactly, knob turning, just like intuition. We have almost none of that in the world of graph neural networks. And it's not like we haven't right. tried to transfer these things. It's just some of them haven't worked, right? So one big one is data augmentation. So a huge, very important trick in training image models is to kind of slightly distort the images and then keep the labels the same. Because like, you know, an image of a cat is still a cat if you rotate it nine degrees or whatever, right? Yep. So that actually ends up being a huge, huge trick for increasing performance of these image models. What does it mean to slightly perturb a graph? Okay. Right? There are these discrete objects. We don't really know what that means. It might be domain specific. Doing it one way in chemistry might not work for social network graphs. Right. So like all those tricks, that's just one example, but and all those tricks don't transfer. 
How much of an improvement in performance in the imaging side do these tricks play? Is it like going from, you know, an AUC of 0.96 to 0.97, or is this like going from an AUC of 0.6 to 0.9? You know, it can be kind of anywhere in between, and it kind of depends on what your data set looks like in the first place. It's rarely trivial. It's something that you almost always want to reach for, and it's so common, at least in images, that it's often just like a switch that you flip. So you really don't have to think very hard often in the kind of modern tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch about adding these kinds of augmentations, at least if you're doing classification on images. And, you know, to be fair, this is also something that hasn't made it entirely into natural language processing either, just because those are also discrete objects and you can't just like rotate a sentence. But there's a lot of other opportunities in graphs as well. So just the field is kind of open. One that's kind of especially exciting in chemistry is chirality. So you can have two molecules that are optical isomers that are kind of mirror images of each other. Their graphs are the same, but in 3D structure, they don't fit on top of each other. Like kind of, you know, your left hand, your right hand, you can't like turn them so that your thumbs are on top of each other and they're facing the same way. It's just, it just doesn't work. Turns out that's actually kind of hard to deal with or to represent. And there's some work in getting that to work, but we've got a long ways to go. So it's just interesting that there's this whole other data modality. It's just this kind of the Wild West to me, which to me is really exciting. That's the kind of problem space I really like to be working on. Fantastic. Um, I would say this is super interesting. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me about this. uh, And thank you even more for bringing us the interview. It was really awesome. Of course. I think that wraps it up for this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wolchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice.com at gv.com.